are Locked On NBA, your daily NBA podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up and welcome to another Monday edition of Locked On NBA, the biggest stories with the local experts. I'm your Monday host, Jackson Gatlin, also host of Locked On Rockets right here on the Locked On Podcast Network. Today, we'll be joined by Tony East from Locked On Pacers to discuss Tyrese Halliburton's future potential, as well as the timeline for the rebuilding process in Indiana. Then we'll be joined by Pat, the designer from Locked On Bulls, as Pat explains why Bulls fans should feel confident and okay, despite the fact that the Bulls haven't made any major moves this offseason. And then lastly, we'll be joined by Joe Mullinax from Locked On Grizzlies to touch base on John Morant, his potential success with the Grizzlies this next season, and how to define expectations for Memphis after so much success this past season. As always, we appreciate you for making Locked On NBA your first listen each and every day. We are free and available on all podcast platforms, including YouTube. Joining us now is Tony East from Locked On Pacers and Locked On NBA, who you can follow on Twitter at T East NBA. Now, Tony, the Pacers are kind of in an interesting spot, right? You know, midway through last season, they make the deal. They, they acquire Tyrese Halliburton, no more DeMontis Sabonis. And I, I want to kind of start with Halliburton because I look at the numbers. I know, you know, small sample size, 26 games, but I look at the numbers and I look at what he did with the Pacers. And I don't know how you can't sit there and be like incredibly excited that the Pacers may have like stumbled into a future superstar to, to put some perspective on this, right? When he was with the Pacers, 26 games, right? Averaged 17.5 points, 4.3 boards, 9.6 assists, 1.8 steals in, across those 26 games. Only... 3.2 turnovers per game. That's a three to one assist to turnover ratio. Did this with incredible shooting on top of it and some perspective on that. Again, I know it's a smaller sample size, but in Steve Nash's second MVP season, he averaged 10.5 assists and 3.5 turnovers. Another three to one assist to turnover ratio. I, I mean, am I, should I be like less high on Halliburton than I currently am? Oh, I'm extremely high on Halliburton and you just nailed part of why. Like if you go through past season statistically and look for guys who in one of their first two seasons averaged I even did the cutoffs below his averages I did 15 and 9 on 40 percent three-point shooting in any of their first two seasons every single one of them except for Damon Stoudemire who was also awesome was an all-star at some point like Trey Young Darius Garland Mark Price Tim Hardaway an incredible group of players that suggests yes if you can shoot like this and pass you are extremely hard to guard and so even if he never becomes this elite dynamic scorer, the skills he has are, are just so rare and hard to contain that it, it, he's going to be very good. And someone that can lead the Pacers through this rebuild at whatever pace they decide to take it. They're not a franchise that likes to go slow, but they're also not a team that typically trades away good players and goes through rebuild. They did that last year. So we'll see where they're headed. But Halliburton, very good player. I think a little underrated in the NBA sphere, given his stance and projects to be even better pretty soon. Yeah, and he, I mean, he's basically kind of flirting as well with that that 50-40-90 club. Needs to get the free throw shooting a little bit higher, but I think that's something that he can absolutely accomplish. Looking at where the Pacers are at, you know, uh, you know, kind of navigating this rebuilding process for the Pacers, which I think at one point in time you called it a retooling process, not a rebuilding Whoops. process. So, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, at cold takes, cold takes exposed <laughs> you for that one. But, you know, how do you kind of define expectations for this upcoming season for the Indiana Pacers? It's funny looking back on me saying retool because I just alluded to something too. Like they never do what they're doing right now. The last time they truly even like tried to rebuild, I don't even know when you could say that, was like the 1990s, like the very early 1990s. <laughs> like, 
They never do this. So it's very different for them. And that's why defining expectations is really interesting. The franchise has never really had to think like this before, where development is more important than wins. It looked like when they traded Paul George, they might be headed for that. But even then, they signed Bogdanovich, they signed Collison, Victor Oladipo suddenly is amazing, and boom, they don't even have to deal with that. So they don't, they've never had to think this way in a very long time. So I, I, I would say from the outside looking in, although I have talked to people, that a lot of what they'll set their expectations to be will be about development for their key young guys, Chris Duarte, Tyrese Halburn, Benedict Matherin, who had a bomb summer league. You know, they, they love their young core, setting those guys up for success, figuring out what works with all of them together. And then everything else, if they win a lot, if some of their vets, Buddy Heald, Miles Turner, McConnell look good, is just icing on the cake that helps them either get good players or make better trades or just set themselves up to be better in the future because it's rare for the Pacers to go through this rebuild. And everything they do, especially this season where it's really year one of this project, is all about finding those baselines, setting up what the boundaries and core are for your team going forward. And so we'll see how aggressive they are and trying to get out of it and grow. But this year is the year all about setting those baselines and seeing what their core pieces are for this rebuild. You know, I desperately, those three names you just mentioned there, I, I desperately want to see at some point this season, I don't, and I, I don't know if there's even a remote possibility of it being a starting lineup at some point, but the idea of Tyrese Halliburton, Benedict Matherin, and Chris Duarte all sharing the floor with one another at the same time is a really intriguing possibility for me because they all have, I think, the size to be kind of that, like, switchability on defense, and maybe Matherin is the one kind of anchoring the three spot. Maybe he's, you want a three that's a little bit bigger than that, but just all three of those guys on the floor together would be a really interesting look, and I, I, I hope it's something that Rick Carlisle is willing to tinker with a little bit. But when when kind of looking at where this Pacers team is at, how do you kind of, I guess, looking, I guess looking at Carlisle, right? What are the what are the thoughts on like is he bought into the idea of rebuilding this thing from the ground up? Because I didn't expect him to be like, and I thought he was kind of brought in to be like the winning coach. For sure he was. You know, they played the heat on TNT in May or in May in December last year right and they were still a little under 500 but kind of in the mix for play and playoffs at the time looking a little better and they just started their their big COVID hit on their team and you know we're kind of in at the start of a skit and Jared Greenberg of TNT reported on the broadcast that he talked to Rick Carlisle about hey do you sign up for rebuild and he said that Carlisle was like no <laughs> which is funny because when he had talked to local media he hadn't been so direct about it he had kind of talked around the question so, yeah, I, I and a lot of others agreed with you. Like, this guy's won a championship before. All his teams really gel in the regular season. Great tactician, even though he hasn't done great in the playoffs since winning a title. Like, he's very well regarded as a strong coach. But they were bad last year. They had to make the directional change they did. So when talking to Carlisle this summer, you know, at, at post-draft pressers and, and free agency stuff, something he really likes about coaching is the teaching side of it. Teaching guys skills that they can apply in games that help them get better, that help the team get better that set up certain lineups to, to click better. He really likes that part of the game. So while I think he is maybe not, this may not be the perfect, but like a little bit better suited for like good players and, and putting them in the right combinations to succeed. I think he will do well on a rebuilding team, teaching skills, teaching situations, getting guys better and fitting better together. I think he will do well in that setting. I just also agree that it's maybe not what he expected when he signed a four-year contract to be the coach of the Indiana Pacers. So we'll see. Maybe that means he you know, leans on guys like Heald and Turner and McConnell a little more than some expect from the outside. But maybe it means some of these young guys really gain a lot. Like Ben Matherin came in for a second workout with the Pacers the night of his pre-draft workout to work just with Carlisle. Like that's the sort of stuff he really likes. I think that sort of stuff will show this season. But I also think some of those vets could be playing a little more often than some expect just because of who he is as a coach. 
Speak of the devil, I'm glad you mentioned a couple of those names there. Buddy Heald, Miles Turner, the trade that has been staring us <laughs> in the face all summer, Tony. I, you know, thoughts on this, you know, proposed salary dump, Russell Westbrook swap, you know, Pacers maybe walk away with a pick or two from L.A., the, the framework of the deal. You know, the way that I look at it, right, is you got all this propaganda coming out of, you know, L.A. saying they're not going to trade Russ. They're, they're, they want to test it out. They're going to run with a Russell Westbrook, Patrick Beverly backcourt, I guess. Um, I mean, is it just one of those things where things need to start blowing up really poorly in LA for them to entertain, like, you know, cashing on this trade with the Pacers and would the Pacers not be maybe better suited to see if they can get more elsewhere and maybe dealing, you know, Turner and, and healed individually rather than trying to package them in a deal for a guy like Russ and obviously the picks. You nailed it. I think because if they trade him individually, you know, the, the thought is at least for most, and I think, you know, some GMs have talked about this in the past, like miles Turner is worth a first on his own, right? He's that good of a player, even on an expiring deal. And so the difference between Westbrook negative value and heel neutral value is the other first. And that's why the Pacers are right to be asking for two firsts. But I also understand the Lakers saying, well, these are only two ways we can get better at all <laughs> with LeBron on our team. So if this trade doesn't work for us, we don't want to do it. So they might not want to trade both firsts unless they, like you said, like have a terrible start and totally desperate. So I don't think it's going to happen because of that sort of standstill of goals. Like I understand why both teams are making the decisions they make. It makes a lot of sense for the Pacers. Like they need to reach the salary floor somehow at some point. And if they can get some draft picks along the way, especially for a guy like Heald, who may not be in their long-term future. Yeah, that makes sense. But they, they have to get the right protections and get the right assets back because Turner is good. Heald had a good season for them. So it makes sense for both teams to explore it. But until the asset value is right, I don't know if it's going to happen. Last thing here for you, Tony, and we just you know found out as reported by Sham Sharani of The Athletic this past Friday, the current framework for the proposed NBA in-season tournament as soon as the 2023-2024 season, basically as structured, it would be cup games kind of throughout November, eight teams eventually advanced to a single elimination final in December, the other 22 teams would continue with the regular season, all of the games would be part of the regular 82-game schedule, uh, one extra game for the two final teams in the tournament and it includes some i guess tbd prizes for the eight teams that advance to the single elimination round what are your thoughts on this proposed in-season tournament that we've been hearing about for it feels like a few years now yeah good on the nba because i'm gonna here's how i'm gonna say it uh the WNBA literally already has exactly what this is in place it's called the commissioner's cup so you, the first game you play against every team in your conference for a WNBA team at home and on the road counts as a commissioner's cup standings game and the team who's first in each conference in the Commissioner's Cup standings at the All-Star break playing the Commissioner's Cup final game. That's the only extra game played on the WNBA calendar is that finals game. So two teams play an extra game. And it's awesome because there's like late in the in the Commissioner's Cup race, you, you care about those games a little more. So the regular season becomes more important. Obviously, the players care about the prize. They get to play in the game like it works out. And I think it's going to meet the NBA's goals for similar reasons. The regular season games become more important and aren't just some people think the 82 games are a drag and some games don't matter, which is true. Like teams throw games in March on purpose. Great. The tournament will draw viewers because those games are going to be awesome. It won't add to the regular season for all these teams that care about load management, things like that. It seems like a pretty good system that copies something that has worked for another league. And to me, that makes it a win for checking all the boxes that the NBA cares about. Obviously, it'll come with some unforeseeable drawbacks, but for the goals, it seems like the NBA has for the tournament, for the league growth and for something that's already in place and working for another league. Yeah, I like the idea. I think it's a good idea for the league to pursue something like this, as long as they can figure out the right pricing, because these players make so much money. 
cash isn't going to do it. You got to, I think the incentive has to be at the team level, like a, like the 61st pick in the draft that you can't trade goes to the winning team, something like that. But if they can figure that out, I think it's a pretty good idea. A glowing endorsement of the proposed NBA in-season tournament. What's going to happen with Tyrese Halliburton? Can he sustain this level of play across an entire season with the Pacers? Will Buddy Heald and Miles Turner be on the way out in some capacity for Russ or in some other variation of a trade? You're going to have us covered for all that and more over at Locked On Pacers. Tony, I appreciate you stopping by Locked On NBA with me. Thanks for having me, Jackson. Coming up, should the Chicago Bulls be confident despite making no major offseason additions or subtractions for that matter? But first, a message from our friends over at BetOnline because BetOnline.net is your number one source for all of your pro and college football betting needs and sports info this season. Find all the latest football league developments, game matchups, news, and podcasts, including this year's opening week's games. BetOnline is also your home for everything NBA, NFL, MLB, they, you name it, they've got it as far as sports go. In fact, you can take a look right now at who the odds on favorites are for the NBA title this next season. you got the Boston Celtics leading the way at plus 550. Golden State Warriors and Milwaukee Bucks behind them at plus 700. And then the Brooklyn Nets and the LA Clippers rounding out the top five at plus 700. So for all of that and more odds, be sure to check out BetOnline to see all the trends in action available to you. BetOnline, it's where the game starts. And continuing on here at Locked On NBA Monday. Now, look, Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, Nikola Jokic, LeBron James, Giannis Antetokounmpo, who is the most valuable NBA player this season? Locked On and Bet Online present the NBA Top 50 Most Valuable Players starting on September 19th. Find it on Locked On NBA wherever you get your podcasts and on YouTube. Joining us now is Pat the Designer from Locked On Bulls. You can follow on Twitter at Pat the Designer, also host of Locked On NBA. Now, Pat, where I want to start with is should Bulls fans be confident or worried that Chicago didn't really make any major moves this offseason? I mean, here's the thing, right? I I have to give credit to Hayes. I think I said this on Locked On NBA last week, and I'll give credit to him here. There's a lot to be said about not making moves if you were a bad basketball team last season. But like Hayes said, a lot of teams in the East made moves this year, but they didn't make moves that make them better than a healthy Bulls team. And I think that's the part that you really have to look at, right, when you're talking about where this team is heading. They were one of the best teams in the NBA last year without having a healthy team, without uh, Zach Levine being 100% without Lonzo Ball for most of that year, right? And so you come into this season feeling like if you're 100% healthy, now we're not starting off the season great, but if you're at a minimum healthier, this team can still be one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference, even with all the adjustments that have been made. Yeah, I, I, you know, I want to get into that a little bit as far as, you know, how the Bulls maybe stack up to some of the other Eastern Conference teams that have made additions to their roster. But on that point, right, what is the latest on Lonzo Ball, the knee, re, knee rehab? Will he be yeah. available at the start of the season? And, and again, if not, how much does that impact the Bulls, especially in the, or the early going? Uh, so latest that we got from Ramon, Ramona Shelburne is that um, he won't be available for training camp probably is going to miss the beginning of the season, right? And I know a lot of Bulls fans, a lot of people around the NBA look at that as, that's the that, that's tough for the Bulls. They're going to start off struggling. They're going to have these tough times. Like, I, I don't need Lonzo Ball at the beginning of the season. When I need him is in the playoffs. When I need him is going into the end of the season. Preferably before, I, I'd like to have him at the beginning of the season, right? But, like, if Lonzo Ball comes back at game 20 and he's playing 100% healthy and he's ready to go, 
we don't care as long as the Bulls stay afloat. And the Bulls showed last season they can stay afloat through a myriad of injuries through a lot of these really good teams in the NBA. Now, the one thing that I will say that helps me feel a lot better about that is the fact that we got a young guy like Ayo Desumu on this team, right, who came out last season, was one of not just the best defenders among rookies, but was one of the best defenders in the NBA all up until he hit that what, what one can only call a rookie wall because it was like he looks exhausted every night now. So I, I think that, right, like I look at, okay, he was one of the best defenders in the NBA. In college, he was more of a scorer. I hope his scoring takes a bit of a step there. I don't feel like it's the end of the world if the Bulls start the season with Ayo Desumo as their starting point guard. And so for me, right, like I think it's not Lonzo Ball's done for the year. We're going to lose another year of Lonzo. He's going to be out. He's going to be injured, blah, blah, blah. I think it's okay. If he starts this season and he's not 100% ready to go, we've, we've made provisions for that. We brought in Goran Dragic. We have Iodesuma. We have uh, uh, Alex Caruso on this team. Those are the things to me that I look at where I say, I've still got some really good players at that point guard position. It's just a little bit more on the bench. This Bulls team at times to me kind of feel Pat kind of feels to me like, you know, the, the whole is greater than the sum of their parts at times, right? You have so many different pieces, so, so many different talented pieces, but then, you know, even you get them all together just collectively, they're kind of able to elevate and as you already alluded to, right, kind of battling so many different injuries and stuff that they dealt with last season and yet still finding ways to be successful. But at the heart of all of that and was was kind of surprising, right? DeMar DeRozan, maybe kind of like a bit of a career renaissance, right, even at times like in discussions for the MVP debate, like yeah. at, at one point last season, which was kind of crazy. What are you hoping to see out of him this year? Are, are there any adjustments that you want to see out of him? You know, how he works with teammates? Do you, yeah. do you think he's capable of that same level of play again? I think DeMar is capable of it, right, because it's it's a methodical game with him, right? Like, it's all about rhythm. It's all about being in rhythm. It's all about uh, um, playing his game, the simplicity of it, right, and getting to his spots and knocking him down the same shots he's knocked down his entire career. I'm probably one of the few Bulls fans to say this, though. I want to see DeMar DeRozan do less. Sounds crazy, right? Like, he's putting up 30-plus. He's hitting game winners. He's going out there. But it was because he had to. There was a lot of Bulls fans that looked at last season and, and, and fans around the NBA and said, DeMar DeRozan's is the only piece you got. And that was kind of a factual statement because when you start to – when we find out after the season, right, uh, uh, trainers are saying that Zach Levine was basically playing at 50% ever since he went down with uh, the first knee injury, but he plays through it. Uh, you never had Lonzo Ball. Caruso was playing at 50%, but forced himself to come back, wasn't 100% ready to go. Um, you know, a lot of players dealing with injury. And so DeMar literally said, all right, well, let me just put on the offensive guru hat. I'm going to go out here and kill everybody, and we'll see what happens. It turned into a lot of wins. But I want to see DeMar do less this season because I want to see Zach Levine take that step, right? Zach Levine was somebody who was 27, 28 points a game two years ago. I want to see him take that step again and get back into that, especially with the new rules where you're talking about uh, there is basically no take foul. You, If you're going to take it, it's two in the ball, or it's one shot in the ball, I mean. Um I think that's going to open up a lot of things going to the basket for Zach Levine because people aren't just going to say, I'm just going to grab you and, and you're not going to get there. I think Zach Levine could be somebody that's averaging 30 points a game. I want to see DeMar kind of take that offensive step the other direction because then that means, okay, Patrick Williams, who's major for the Bulls this season, is taking that step. That means Zach Levine's moving in the right direction. Ayo Sumo's moving in the right direction. Maybe Lonzo's back right. And those are the pieces that I think need to take steps right, the collective of the team, not just one guy being able to out there and score. I kind of remember this being a talking point last season, right? You know, is is this Zach Levine's team or is it DeMar DeRozan's team? It, it kind of feels like to me you like want this to be Zach Levine's team, right? 
I, I mean, I, here's the thing. At the end of the day, I don't care because basketball teams go through so many changes so quickly that it could be one guy's team one year and not one guy. Like last year, going into last season, we'd have said the Cleveland Cavaliers was Colin Sexton's team. Halfway through the season, we're looking at it, we're like, Darius Garland's a monster, and it's his team. And now we're talking about moving Colin Sexton, right? Donovan Mitchell comes over there. Now it's, is it Donovan Mitchell's team or is it Darius Garland's team? Like, right? Like, so the narrative around whose team it is, unless you have one of those like major, like Kevin Durant, LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard, even Kawhi, well, I mean, kind of Kawhi Leonard, even with Kawhi Leonard, it's like, are they better when PG's the number one or Kawhi's the number one? Like, I think the NBA changes so quickly. You have to focus more on not whose team it is, but do you have that leadership on the team that you can lean on that's been in those big moments and has been able to make those big plays? The Bulls do have that in DeMar DeRozan. Um, and even a little bit in Goran Dragic now bringing him in, right? Like Goran Dragic has been in the NBA Finals and was a major scorer in those NBA Finals. So, like, I think you have a couple of pieces that you can lean on, but also you want to see those younger guys take that next step. There is no team if Patrick Williams doesn't take that next step, if Zach Levine doesn't take that next step. And whoever takes the biggest step, guess what? That's whose team it is. There we go, right? We're, we're just going to have a team player by committee, right? Just whoever, you know, if you're the best guy, you know, it's your team. Maybe we'll do, team, you know, team player night by night, right? You're the best yeah. player that night. This is your team. Um, Pat, you mentioned earlier, right, that you should be, the Bulls fans should be confident about this team, you know, being 100% healthy, not really worrying about some of the other teams in the East that have made improvements and stuff. I, I just, and I know we got to get to the season. We got to see what it looks like because you can yeah. talk about a team on paper and then it's just a, you know, it could be a dumpster fire in, in actuality. But, to me, it looks like, right, Philly got better. Cleveland added Donovan Mitchell. They're going to be better. Brooklyn on paper looks good if everybody can buy in, but that's, you know, big, 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 big if. Like, you know, bold, your coach to start the season. <laughs> dude, bold face, like 72-point font if, like, yeah. you know, if, yeah, yeah, yeah. if Brooklyn buys in. Atlanta got better with DeJounte, DeJounte Murray. You know, I just – what? let's put it this way. What are the teams in the East that you can sit here – with a straight face, confidently say, yeah, those are the teams that are better than the Bulls right now, assuming the Bulls are healthy. I, I think it's the, your easy ones, right? Like, I still look at Milwaukee, and I say they're 100% better, right? I still look at um, the uh, uh, Boston Celtics, and I say they're better, right? Like, they made the NBA Finals. I'm not going to say the Bulls got them. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I look at those top teams and say that, but like you said, Philly got better. Maybe we got to see it, right? Like, is P.J. Tucker what makes them better? Is uh, uh, bringing uh, uh, Montrez Harrell what makes them better, right? Like, I think there's a lot of better that sits on, okay, is James Harden going to be better? Because that's what puts them above it, right? Um, Atlanta, got to show me. I think Atlanta, I like DeJounte Murray on Atlanta. Doesn't change the fact that that's a really small backcourt and there's not a lot of defense going on there outside of DeJounte Murray. Uh, I feel the same way kind of about what they did in Cleveland, right? And so for me, right, it's not to say that 100% I think the Bulls are going to dominate that team consistently. But what I think is that the Bulls, you look at your top teams in the Eastern Conference, and it's one word that Acme has said the entire offseason, continuity. The Bulls know how each other play together. Even through injury, right, they force themselves to play together majority at 70, 60 percent, right, trying to get that continuity, trying to build up that rapport with each other so they understand how each other play. They're already playing in the offseason together. When you look at those top teams, right, Milwaukee's been together for a while. I still put Miami at a, at a, as a top team in this Eastern Conference. They've been together for a while. They're not changing nothing. Cleveland's running it back pretty much with the same stuff, although they did add Donovan Mitchell, so I think that one might be the more interesting one. I think the continuity that the Bulls are coming into this season with plays a lot in where I put them. 
Um, I still have them as one of the top teams in the East because when they were healthy, they were one of the top teams in the East. Last thing for you here, Pat, as reported this last Friday by Sham Sharani of The Athletic, the current framework for the proposed NBA in-season tournament, which could happen as early as the 2023-2024 season. Basically, you have cup games all throughout November, the early part of the season. Eight teams advance to a single elimination final in December. The other 22 keep going on with the regular season schedule. All the games are part of the 82-game schedule, with the exception that there's one extra game for each of the two final teams as part of the tournament. It includes some, I guess, predetermined, you know, well, to be determined prizes, I should say, for the eight teams that advance to the single elimination stage. What are your thoughts on this in-season tournament? Because it feels like we've been talking about this, you know, for a few years now uh, about the NBA kind of, you know, adding something like this. I've got two things on it, right? My first thing is it doesn't matter anymore because you made it a part of the regular season. So now it's games that guys are going to play in anyway. Um, and you better come with some crazy incentives to make this worthwhile like i'm talking about a playoff spot guaranteed if you win this tournament right to me that's the only thing that does it because in that situation right like take a team like the chicago bulls if you have a guaranteed playoff spot maybe you go into the end of that last season resting your players a little bit resting your players a little bit more because you know at a minimum you're going to be a top five seed even if it's five we've got some injury issues we're going to rest that's the only incentive to me that makes this worth it. Nothing is worth it. Like my my prize for playing in this tournament is I have to play 83 games instead of 82. Like leagues that do this, I I, I know they do it a little bit in the WNBA, but even like that, they don't look at it as oh you did a great job here. It's like oh you won it, nice. Let's go to the next game. Um, the leagues that do this and it holds the most weight. There's some form of relegation involved in it. And I said this on Locked on Bulls today. Unless you're going to do something crazy like the G League has an opportunity to play in this thing and the worst team out of this tournament gets relegated, there is no point in doing this to me. Like, you're not changing anything. You're just adding stuff to what was already stuff that existed. It's like adding MVPs to the Eastern and Western Conference Finals last year. You know, like... It's going to be 10, 20, 30 years before somebody's talking about, you know, Tatum was the first one to win uh, Eastern Conference MVP uh, for for the Boston Celtics. Like, it doesn't matter to me, in my opinion. Now, nah, look, we're going to sit. We're going to send Chicago down. We're going to rele- relegate them and bring the Windy City Bulls up. How's that? I'm going to be honest with you. Like, if it's that's why I said to me, this is a tournament that you hold with the worst teams in the league. Well, we'll see what happens with the tournament stuff. It's still, you know, at least, you know, a little bit further down the line. But what happens with the Chicago Bulls this season? Are they a team fighting for home court advantage in the playoffs? Will DeMar DeRozan maybe take a bit of a step back offensively for the betterment of his teammates, the rest of the team on the floor for the Chicago Bulls? Of course, you're going to have us covered for all of that and more over at Locked on Bulls. Pat, I appreciate you stopping by Locked on NBA with me. Always, man. Appreciate you for having me on. Coming up, how do we define expectations for the Memphis Grizzlies and Ja Morant this season after so much success last season? We're going to get there in just one moment. Joining us now is Joe Molinax from Locked on Grizzlies. You can follow on Twitter at Joe Molinax. Now, Joe, when we take a look at this Grizzlies team, a team that experienced a lot of success this past season, you know, second seed in the Western Conference, made it to the second round, you know, this 
is a you know nice strong core a good up and coming team and maybe taking a bit a bit of a bigger leap you know as far as just the timeline of you know this Grizzlies team being good again than, than a lot of people were expecting from you know last season and at the core of that is John Morant right you know an electrifying player you know took a significant third year leap what does he need to do to take another leap this season in your eyes continue to maximize the floor and what I mean by that is obviously he's one of the best if not the best in the entire NBA at getting to the basket, right? He was the leading scorer in terms of uh, points in the paint as a, as a guard. You know, that hadn't happened in a long time. So Ja is the elitist of the elite, uh, if that's even a word, when it comes to being able to do that. He's shown the ability to shoot the three a little bit better. Obviously, he's not going to be mistaken for, you know, Steph Curry or Clay Thompson or even his own teammate Desmond Bain in that regard but he is more of a threat than he was two years ago, and teams have to at least somewhat respect him out there. He's a better three-point shooter than teammate Jaron Jackson Jr., who I would argue has more gravity. I hate that phrase, but, um, you know, folks see Jaron and say, oh, he might shoot it. They don't necessarily think that as much with Ja, but they should. Um, I, I think the mid-range game is the next step. People collapse so much on him as he drives to the paint. You know, watching the old film of Allen Iverson and others, even Mitch Richmond, Players like that that really had strong mid-range game, mid games. Uh, Rip Hamilton comes to mind. Guys that can kind of create a shot for themselves, get that 10 to 12-foot look. And, you know, obviously he has a lot of skills already in his bag with his floater, his ability to get under defenders and pass uh, to open shooters in the corners. Uh, I think the next step for him is really prioritizing a solid mid-range game. Again, he may never be mistaken for Chris Paul, but he doesn't need to be. If he just does enough to have another – tool in his toolkit that makes a defense have to honor it it's going to make his life that much easier so i think that's the next step for him in terms of his evolution offensively right kind of adding those complementary pieces to his game so that he can still focus on and excel at the the one thing that he's clearly the Correct. elitist of the elite we're gonna go with eliterist how's that we'll, we'll create a brand new I word like just that. just for john moran he's the eliterist at getting to the rim in the nba i gotta ask the sidebar here though what's up why do you hate the term gravity joe what's up I just think it's, you know, like, here's why. Quick, quick, quick tangent, okay? Jay Crowder is a player that used to play for the Memphis Grizzlies, and he shot 29% from three, which is atrocious for anybody else except for Jay Crowder as a member of the Memphis Grizzlies because there were people that said he needs to keep shooting because he has such tremendous gravity as a shooter. Well, sorry for not paying attention to the Memphis Grizzlies and their shooting percentages. He shouldn't have had any gravity. It should have been zero gravity. He should have been floating around on the floor, not taking shots away from other basketball players. That's what should have happened. So that's why I don't like gravity. You can blame Jay Crowder. Jay Crowder does great with the Miami Heat. He does great with the Phoenix Suns. He stunk as a shooter with the Memphis Grizzlies, and I was tired of hearing about his gravity and tangent. All right. New 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 nickname for Jay Crowder is officially Zero Gravity, as Zero dubbed gravity. by Joe here. I love it. Um, now, you mentioned his name there a moment ago, Jaron Jackson Jr. How is he progressing after the foot surgery? You know, it, will he, is it projected he's going to miss the start of the season for the Grizzlies? And how does that really impact them to not have, you know, their second best player alongside Jaw to start the season if that's the case? It's massively important because one of the elephants in the room is as great as John Morant is and as well as Jaron Jackson Jr. played last year, especially defensively, they don't really play all that well together, at least not as well as you would expect them to, right? Like they should be pick and pop, pick and roll dynamos. They should be really strong in terms of their games meshing and matching well. You see flashes of it, 
they just haven't had as many chances to play together. And now that Jaron has been injured again with his foot, in the offseason, you don't get to see it as much. You don't get to have that work that you would have had otherwise if those guys would have been able to play together. Now he had to focus on rehabbing instead of working on that specific area of his game alongside a guy that at least for the next few years, they're going to be linked together in terms of play. So I'm nervous about it. I think most reports have him coming back maybe mid to late November. So he'll miss the start of the season, but it certainly could have been a lot worse when you hear foot injury with bigs. Um, it, it makes you a lot more nervous than just, you know, the four to five months that it will wind up, wind up being. But it's another offseason where he has to prioritize rehab and not prioritize improving his skill set, especially offensively. And, and that makes you a little nervous for what he's capable of. It, the sky is the limit for him. I, he has the capacity to be the best two-way player in the NBA, in my opinion. That's his ceiling. He's far from that ceiling right now. I'm not saying he's close. But the skills that he has combined with his size, he can do it if he's able to put it all together. But there's a lot of obstacles to that at this stage. What's the plan or, or maybe, you know, what should be the plan uh, on how to approach the, the situation with Danny Green? Ooh, that's an interesting question. I don't think Memphis folks think too much about Danny Green. Uh, obviously, he's coming out of injury himself. I don't know that he'll even be cleared for basketball, full basketball activity until January or so, I believe it is. So he, he's a guy that if he's around, obviously he has a veteran presence. He can still play defense relatively well coming off of a knee surgery that might be a little bit iffy. Uh, he can shoot the ball relatively well in the mid-30s. You know, <laughs> Memphis historically, I know you know this, hasn't been able to scoff at mid-30% three-point shooting. Uh, when you have Tony Allen as one of your best players, you you go, wow, 35%. That's remarkable from range. Um, so it, it's hard for me to just kind of push him away. But at the same time, they're just not really – if you look at their rotation, you know, if you assume their starters are Morant, Bain, Dylan Brooks, Jackson Jr., and Steven Adams, then your bench players are Tyus Jones, John Conchar, Zaire Williams, who they expect big things from, Brandon Clark, and then Santi Aldama, somebody like that, they look more like they are lined up to try to take a swing for another big as opposed to adding another wing. Uh, Zaire Williams is not really a four. He's not a stretch four type. He's a literal perimeter uh, 6'9 player. He's, he's a guard more than he's a forward. So I don't know that they're going to really have a place for him. I could see them using him to facilitate another trade, to add another asset. I really have a hard time seeing them make a win-now move with him because they haven't made a win now move yet. Uh, it would be a, a change of character to do that around Danny Green would be a bit of a shock. And kind of, you know, an inverse of the right, they, they added Danny Green, um, another player that they lost. And I thought this was one of the like sneakiest, best acquisitions of the offseason for the Minnesota Timberwolves, but them adding Kyle Anderson. How much mm -hmm. does that loss of Kyle Anderson hurt the Grizzlies? And, and who are you kind of expecting to step up and fill that spot that he was, you know, kind of holding down in, in the rotation? That's a great question. Uh, he is someone who is so good at everything involving the game of basketball except for scoring or shooting, which obviously is an important part of the game of basketball. He's, he's kind of like, right, almost like poor man's Ben Simmons in a right. way, right? Like Yes. He, he facilitates extremely well. He's a very good defender still. If you view him through the lens of a big, right, if you think he's still a forward, like he can play on the perimeter consistently, you're going to be disappointed. If you look at him as a Boris Diaw-esque kind of player, he does a lot of good things that are going to help you win. And I think that he's a great pickup. 
especially for regular season success. Kyle Anderson was not as vital to the postseason for the Memphis Grizzlies. But in terms of regular season, one of the main ways that the Grizzlies had one of the best offenses in the NBA was through their use of transition defense. And the two guys that were the biggest creators of that for them were Anthony Melton, who they traded to get Danny Green and a first-round pick for, in fairness, and Kyle Anderson, who they let walk in free agency. So something's got to give. They're going to have to change the way they score the basketball if they want to remain one of the top NBA offenses. They just don't have the pieces anymore that helped them facilitate that transition defense. Who replaces him? Uh, David Roddy, Jake LaRavia, uh, any of those first-round pick guys have similar builds in terms of being a combo forward. They theoretically could be that guy. Again, Zaire Williams, he's not in that position group, uh, but he's going to be asked to do more this coming season. A combination of those guys in the aggregate, but Kyle Anderson's one of the most unique players in the NBA. It's going to be difficult to replace what he brought to the team. doesn't mean that Memphis is going to lose 10 extra games because they lost Kyle Anderson, but I do think his role, especially in terms of regular season success, is being underestimated. This past Friday, Sham Sharani of The Athletic reported the current framework of the proposed NBA in-season tournament as soon as the 2023-2024 season. Basically, cup games throughout November, eight teams advance to a single elimination final in December. The other 22 teams in the association just continue on with their regular season. All the games are part of the normal 82-game schedule with one extra game for each of the two final teams in the tournament includes some TBD prizes, you know, for the eight teams that make it to the single elimination round. Joe, what are your thoughts on this in-season tournament, you know, and how the the NBA could implement it, what it would mean, you know, because it feels like this is something we've been talking about for a while now. Sure. And I do believe that there's some merit to trying to make the regular season, especially the start of it, more interesting. And I think it's important to point out that they're trying to do it at the beginning of the year as football is kind of in its main swing, right? Early October, mid-October early November, it makes their product more watchable in theory when the most popular sport in America is is in its peak season. So I think there's value to trying this. I'm interested in the prizes because if it's just going to be a cash prize, I don't know how you're going to get fans to cheer for multimillionaires making more money. Um, And maybe that's just me. Maybe there's a bunch of people that really like the idea of the soccer style tournament For me personally, I'm curious, how do you get, and it's hard to say this because the regular season games already are kind of meaningless, not meaningless, but there's a reason they're trying to do this at this stage, right? They're not meaningless. They matter just as much as the game in April, but early season, especially as you get into that mid-November stretch, it it can be a bit daunting in terms of, all right, I'm going to stay up to watch Grizzlies Kings at 10 p.m. on a Tuesday. How do you get to that point of, making those games matter a little more. I'm willing to hear them out, if that makes sense. I'm not going to completely poo-poo on it and say it's a terrible idea. I'm also not going to say it's a home run, fantastic. I applaud them for trying something to compete better with the NFL and college football. But at the same time, they need to, the the follow-through here is going to be very important because obviously there's going to be some cash incentive. I'm curious how they twist it and Maybe they add in extra days off. I don't know how that would even work, but just something to really make it worth not just an individual player's part, but whatever their ultimate goal of trying to make the championship and get to the finals is, trying to put those two together, it's going to be worth listening and and hearing them out on. 
Can Ja Morant take yet another leap as an NBA player and one of the most exciting players to watch in today's NBA game? What is Jaron Jackson Jr. going to look like when he eventually returns back from injury, from rehab? You're going to have us covered for all that and more over at Locked on Grizzlies. Joe, I appreciate you stopping by Locked on NBA with me. Thank you, buddy. Thanks for having me. Anytime. And that's going to do it for another Monday edition of Locked On NBA. As always, thank you so much for checking out the show. If you haven't done so yet, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's Apple, Spotify, Google, the Odyssey app, free and available on all podcast platforms. We're also on YouTube, so just go to YouTube, search Locked On NBA. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. But as always, thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to having you back right here at Locked On NBA, the biggest stories with the local experts. <laughs>